pray with me. Uh, Father God, uh, we thank you that we can come together here tonight. Uh, we pray that the last year has taught us the value of being together in person. Uh, we particularly thank you for the easing of restrictions around COVID in the last week. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in the world uh, to stop the spread of COVID and that we might go back to life as normal here in church and in our world. Um, God, as we've, as we've begun to read John, we've seen your power and your might. Uh, we can see that from before creation, you had a plan, and that plan was to save us, a people living in darkness. Uh, we thank you for your son, Jesus, that, that he became flesh and he came into our world bringing hope. Uh, we thank you, God, that by sending your one and only son to earth, we might live, uh, and now we can have a relationship with you. Uh, we ask God for your help, though. Uh, we're still broken vessels, sinful people that need your help to grow. Uh, we pray that you'd continue to do a work in us here at EV Night uh, to be more like your son, Jesus, uh, and that we may continue to grow and mature until the day we see you again in eternity. Amen. Well, God, say, guys, it's good to see you all. It's good to see you all mostly not sitting up in the back end as well. Uh, it's good to be in a bit closer and have more people here. Uh, special welcome to you if you're new with us. My name is Jordan. I don't know if I said that. It was all a bit, bit of a blur at the start there. Uh, but yeah, it's good to see you all. Um, in the last week, the restrictions, like I said, have eased, which is good. So it means that we're back to the two square meter rule. Um, so don't need a gap in between us, and we only need one seat. And best of all, no masks. How good is that? I, um, I was going through the battle every week of fog my glasses up, take them off, can't read anything, put them back on, start again. And I was glad to not do that anymore. Um, but it also means that because we can all sit a bit closer, we can have more people here, and it means that we can actually have all of us here, which is really exciting. So what that means is uh, the live stream that we've been doing for the night service next week will be the last one. So uh, if you have been watching from home, it's great. Uh, we get to all come back and be together. Um, if for health reasons you need to keep doing that, the morning service will still be going for a while. Uh, there you go. Um... We have a family who have been here for a while, the Bacons, you might know them, uh, and they are actually doing something pretty exciting. So what the Bacons are doing is uh, going on mission in Spain, uh, which is pretty crazy. And so they're going to be telling us about that uh, at a sharing night. It's going to be on uh, Monday night here at church in the foyer. So if you're interested in hearing a bit more about that, come get along to it. And we're actually going to hear a bit more from them right now as well. So I'll invite uh, the Bacons up and Adrian as well. Hey, Adrian. He's going to come up. I'm going to get a chair. Yeah. I think we were a little bit further forward last time, but that's all right. So we've actually spent 12 years in South America, in Ecuador, with our boys, and um, we were doing a bunch of different ministries over there, serving as missionaries, and we came back to Australia in 2010. And since then, Colin's been doing um, regular and frequent trips to Central and South America, involved in um, discipleship training and mentoring and building teams to keep training in local churches and beyond. 
Look, why is a good question, actually, because, you know, you know we, I have to say it, sorry, guys, but I'm getting to 60. Um, but we're in a new season of life. Our boys now are adults and so forth. And so um, there's a great book by J.D. Greer called What Are You Going to Do With Your Life? And I actually read it. And uh, it has a great little line there, leveraging your life for the great uh, God's kingdom. And, um, well, I thought, well, what can we do for that, you know, now? And uh, we've got Spanish. We've lived in a in a Latin American country, understand living in cross-cultural situation, all that. And it just so happened that Spain was a good opportunity for that. Spain, a, a mostly Catholic country, but a very secular at the same time. Uh, it's, it's very similar to Australia in that sense. But also with huge migrant communities from Northern Africa, uh, many of those being Muslims. And it's a great opportunity to be able to connect in with these people where they come from countries where they're not allowed to hear the gospel or you can't proselytize, you can't talk about Jesus. And so they're in, they're in a country now where they, we can talk about Jesus. So it's a great opportunity to, to connect in there and help churches. The churches that were there, the gospel's been in Spain for a while, but the churches there are, are small and they need to grow and especially grow in this way of evangelizing their own and also the uh, community around them that's from other countries. Okay, so we're, hope doing, we're hoping to contribute in two main ways. Firstly, Colin's going to keep doing what he's already been doing in South America and hopefully replicate that. So be working with uh, um, local churches and Christians across the country to grow sort of mission engagement and a desire for outreach. So sort of discipleship stuff and, and training and training and equipping local Spanish people to keep doing that work so we can help build churches and help reach out to particularly to migrants in that place. Also, we just want to get involved in our local church where we go to live, then we're just going to still be involved in church like we're involved at EV, you know, maybe reading the Bible with people, doing Bible studies, but helping that church also alongside the pastoral team or whatever to be a um, bit more outward looking and working out ways that they can engage with the local community and beyond. We want to see people come to know Jesus. And, uh, you know, it's not the job of just one person. Uh, the, you know, we're all involved in this. All of you are involved in the evangelism of Central Coast, and we're all involved in evangelism. And so training the local people to be involved in that is a huge uh, opportunity. Uh, we've seen it work in Latin America. The, the, church grow, the Christian church in Latin America has been growing huge, and now we're seeing more and more people going out as workers and missionaries across different countries uh, and we're seeing pastors with with a whole new mindset of reaching out beyond where they are and also seeing communities of people that are different to them maybe a little bit of a different language but no one's reaching them and so they do that cross-culture sort of connection and they connect in we've got a, a guy that um, I've just been re-communicating with uh, he's from Peru but he's in Iraq and uh, they've got a great ministry uh, in Iraq. And they've actually, we trained them uh, many years ago and so forth. So they're taking this material, Simply Mobilizing, and training some of the people there. They've actually done it in Spanish in Iraq. Uh, <laughs> it blows your mind what we're doing. In fact, our team in Spain, we have Finns. And so we're doing it in Finnish. We're doing it in, um, 
Romanian and English and Spanish. So it's just really good. But to see that, people growing and going over to different places, getting out of their sort of comfort zones and going is just, just a great thing. And it all happens because of God. It really does. It's his work. Yeah, it's it's not a, we're getting mixed messages, so uh, we've just got to work through it, and so hopefully we can get our visas and uh, flights, of course, and and all that stuff. Thank you. Great.
Okay, guys, could you open your Bibles with me? Okay, we're going to kick off tonight in Exodus 33. Exodus 33, verse 7. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favour with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Now from John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 6 to 18. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Well, hello. Good to see you all here. Uh, It's great uh, the church is slowly coming back, so wonderful to be in person together. Um, I I don't know how in touch you are with uh, events of the world and so on, but... um, February the 14th is usually a special date. Are any of you familiar with what February the 14th means? No? You don't do relationships at night? It's the day decimal currency came into Australia in 1966. <laughs> <laughs> Take that one home for you. Um, it's Valentine's Day, isn't it? And, uh, and did, yeah, who knows it's Valentine's Day? Half a dozen of you, okay. Um, <laughs> I was, uh, was going to give a little nod to it, but I don't know that we need to. I, it's always one of those things that um, it's hard to know what to do with Valentine's Day because like in our household, Kathy always says to everybody that every day is Valentine's Day in the Heard household. Um, she doesn't actually, she, that's a lie, but it um, <laughs> be, be nice to believe it was true. Uh, being, being the February the 14th, I did want to um, offer some nod towards it, but uh, I want to do it uh, in terms of explaining a point uh, illustrating a point. The point I want to make is, relates to John's Gospel. We look, we're going to be looking at the first 18 verses of John's Gospel again uh, tonight and I, I want to help you appreciate what that part of the Bible is about. John's Gospel is an account, a first-hand account of the events of the life of Jesus, written by a man called John, uh, who was with Jesus during all of those times. He was there, he, he he saw Jesus with his own eyes, he touched him, he heard him, he walked with him and so on. And he was one of the only disciples to actually make it to old age. All the rest of the disciples were killed for their proclamation and claim that Jesus is the Messiah, the King, the Lord come to earth. John made it to old age, not because he was a coward who didn't say much, but uh, by God's grace he was brought through. He's ended up imprisoned actually for his faith on an island called Patmos and um, uh, but he, he had a lot of time to think about the things uh, that he'd witnessed, that he'd experienced. And when he sat down to write his account, he, he wanted to make sure that we understood what these events meant. And so here's the principle. Events don't tell you what to make of them. Events could be read in all kinds of different ways. And here's the nod to, to Valentine's Day. Um, Uh, boy meets girl, Valentine's Day, right? Boy meets girl, girl is interested in boy. Don't understand why, but she is. And and she started to get keen on this young bloke and uh, we're all watching. And she starts to hang around with him more. He doesn't realise, but every turn he turns around, she's there. And uh, in groups of people, he tells a joke and the only one who laughs is the girl. And us who are watching on are going these events mean something. What do they mean? She's keen on you. Now, I hear from the people who watch these things carefully that girls actually flick their hair if they've got long hair and they're interested in you guys. So, just watch for that little sign. Um, 
No, I don't know if that's true, but the, the point is this. There's a series of things happening, and we're all getting it. We're seeing the meaning of these things. She's seeing the meaning. What's the bloke seeing? Nothing. He hasn't got a clue. He doesn't know what's going on. But you see, events don't tell you how to read them. Now, what you have in John's Gospel is a record of the events of the life of Jesus. A series of things that happen. Uh, a man called John the Baptist comes along and points to Jesus. Jesus begins to teach. He does miracles that are called signs through John's Gospel. Very intentionally, he doesn't call them miracles, he calls them signs. Um, people, uh, John tells us about how people uh, rush to him, were captivated by him, but then eventually become cold towards him because he begins to teach things that don't fit with what they want and the religious leaders are against him and he records all of this material of what happens. And they're so against him eventually that they crucify him. They put him up on a cross and kill him. And then he, the tomb is empty. Uh, John reports these extraordinary events. Now, there's a series of events. What do you make of it? What narrative do you give to all of that? Meaning do you give to all of that? Well, the events themselves don't tell you. And John, in the first 18 verses of chapter 1, tell you what sense to make of the events that he's about to record. The first 18 verses give you a whole bunch of teaching, profound teaching. We'll see some of that, we saw some of it last week, we'll see it again tonight. Um, but it's, it, it does two things, it gives you some teaching and it gives you, it gives you the way to join the dots. John says, here's what, here's what these events mean. Here's the big picture of what they're all saying. Understand it as we go through. And so I, what I want to do with us tonight is I want to get down to verse 9 to 13, which is the very centre of the, what's called the prologue, where John is telling us how to make sense of the whole gospel. Now, I want to get down to there and I want to take us through the context and setting, but the three big things I want to talk to you about tonight are that God gives us a gift. There's a terrible tragedy that's reported through these events, but God continues to give a gift. There's the things I want to get to in verse 9 to 13, but let me set it in context again. Let me uh, give you again the massive thing that's going on here. Jez so well brought it to our attention last week, but it's so important we need to just keep kicking it along to see the magnitude of what's happening. You look there in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. This man, Jesus, that John is going to tell you about the events of, the things he did and said and so on, th this man, Jesus, that you're going to meet through John's Gospel, he tells you up front is the embodiment of a being who existed long before the man Jesus existed. John starts the way he does. In the beginning, in eternity past, there was the Word. And in the original language, that word in Greek is actually the word logos. And it actually can help to use a different word for the word to kind of break us out of patterns. In the beginning, John says, was the Logos. Now, the word Logos uh, links with Greek thought. about It's where we get our word logic from, rational thought, Logos, logic. In the beginning was log Logos. But it has its roots in Hebrew thought, in Proverbs 8, in Genesis chapter 1, God creates by the word. And it sounds like in the beginning was this idea, this thing, this principle, this power, Logos. But he says there in verse 2 that this Logos was a he, 
a personal being who was with God and was God. It's important to note that this Logos, this divine Logos, was not Jesus yet. Jesus is the name given to the Logos when he's embodied. That wasn't his name in eternity. The divine Logos was there from the beginning. And in fact, notice John doesn't actually use the language of Jesus, the word Jesus, until verse 17. It's almost like he's reluctant to use the word Jesus Christ until the very end of his introduction because he wants to elevate us, to lift us up. And I take its intention because he wants to, wants to shape the way we read the whole of his account. He wants us to see as we meet this person something that we might have missed otherwise. Jesus' birth wasn't the start. In the beginning was the divine Logos. Jesus wasn't who he was. Jesus was the name given to the divine Logos when he took on flesh, verse 14. You see, there's a whole lot more going on with the account of the person of Jesus than is immediately obvious. And that's the point. As you read the accounts uh, that John gives us from verse 19, you begin to see actually that the hints of all of this were there in the life of Jesus and John's kind of slowly tweaked to them and puts them in the account in these first 18 verses to get you set up for it. Look at verse 15, just once you get this concept you'll start to see it everywhere. Verse 15, John testified, now this is not John the writer of this book, it's John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist testified concerning the divine Logos. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Do you see? This is, this is what John's trying to alert you to, John the author. The divine Logos was there in the beginning. Jesus himself in chapter 8, verse 23 says, you are from below, I am from above. You are from this world, I'm not of this world, says Jesus. I'm the divine Logos, come in the flesh. And at the end of that chapter, verse 57, 50, 58, the Jews say to Jesus, you are not yet 50 years old, how can you say you've seen Abraham, who lived 2,000 years before? And Jesus says, I'll tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am which is a title for divinity. It's all there in the events, in the accounts that John reports. And what he does up front is say, I want you to see this as we go through. I want you to be ready for it. It's a shocking claim that John alerts us to straight away. I want you to see this theme. In Jesus, we are meeting someone who was there before the human Jesus existed. Someone who is vast and powerful and supreme and wholly other, the divine Logos, who was there in the beginning with God and was God. Um, don't let the familiarity of the person of Jesus lull you. You see, this is why Jesus, the man, the God-man, this is why Jesus demands your whole life. Jesus can't just be a hobby. Jesus can't just be one thing you do. 
you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a musician and an artist and a Christian. No. The divine logos is the one we're talking about, who demands everything of you. He is not just another kind of religious leader like Muhammad was or Bo Buddha was or Jesus is. No, no, no. None of those were anything like this man Jesus. The divine logos, who was over everything, enters into our existence in the man, Jesus. Unique. He's not just some tribal deity like a tribe in Papua New Guinea has a tribal gods that they follow. This is the divine logos of the universe who took on flesh and entered our world. Who came into the world, verse 4, to bring us life and light. You see, again, I mean, Jez so wonderfully, helpfully um, pushed us into these pieces. And, I, and I, it's so important to run back through and see it again. To see the scale of what we're about. This is not a hobby. The person of Jesus is not just one piece in your life. If he is who John says he is, the divine logos. Now, I want to get us to verse 9, to the gift, to the tragedy, to the gift. But uh, let me now run through verse 6, 7 and 8 there. There's a mention of John the Baptist. Again, not the author of the book, another John. Uh, who came as a witness to testify concerning the light. Uh, he himself was not the light, he came only a witness to the light. The language of witness is an important theme that you'll see picked up through John's Gospel. Uh, God gives us witnesses to help us see the, the evidences for this man, Jesus, who is the divine Logos. John the Baptist was one of those evidences. We'll come back to him in future weeks. But now you come to verse 9 and you see the scale and sense of things is still high. It's this, the he doesn't use the word Jesus, the true light that gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And so here it is, the gift, the tragedy, the gift. Let me tell you about the gift. John introduces us to the idea of gift with that idea of light, the true light, the authentic light, the genuine light. That's what the idea of true means. It means authentic and genuine, the real light. The light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and, through, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. There is, it, there's the idea of light. Now that idea, light, is, has been mentioned earlier in verse 3 and 4. Uh, verse 4, in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, the darkness is not overcome. So this is an important theme. Um, the divine Logos, who is life and light. Now, now, what does that idea of light mean? Just spend a bit of a moment with me thinking about it. Um, light, it's a fairly vivid and straightforward image. It's a very rich image. Um, and as you go through John's Gospel, you see the idea of light kind of developed and expanded for us as we go along. But it makes perfect sense. You see, w when you think about the idea of light, what does it conjure up in your mind? I mean, I know it conjures up light, but, <laughs> do you know, um, if, if someone comes into the light, what are we thinking is happening for someone who comes into the light? When the lights go on for someone, what's happening? Do you see, do you see how the image is used? W when I say the lights have gone on for me, what do you think I'm saying? Let me give you a thought there. The lights have come on for me. What am I saying? 
I, I now realise something. I've, I've got insight into something that I hadn't before, that I was in the dark about. That's right. So, so light has the idea of learning to see things as you ought. Light has the idea of revealing what was there in the dark that you couldn't see, but when you turn the lights on, I can now see things. It's a revelation. Light is a way of talking about insight, knowledge, understanding, truth. Coming into the light is to come into the truth. You see, light has got all of these kind of ideas to them. Um, but it also has the idea of, of goodness. So light, dark. Dark is a place of evil. Light is a place of goodness and wholesome, life, richness, fullness, purity. To be in the light is to be in the good life, the full life, the rich life. Now, those ideas actually of light and life are tied together. Life is not just existence, though it is that as well, but it's life that's rich and alive which is to be in the light. There's this powerful connection between them. So light, it's a colourful, vivid picture. Um, now, we don't mind spending some time in the dark. So it's not, when I'm talking about light, you mustn't think to only ever be in the light is a good thing. No, that sometimes you don't mind in life to turn the lights off. I was... Um, about 40 years ago, and I hate using that, that's a terrible thing, it sounds like I was two, but I, I was actually, uh, I was an adult. But a long time ago, I was out in the, I was out in the surf down, down in the northern beaches where I grew up, and um, I was with a bunch of blokes, and this is back in the time where I could, was, was um, young enough to pretend I was okay at these things, and I was in the surf, and it was a big, it was a day of big surf, and it was very good surf, it was quite a remarkable day. And we were in there for quite some time, came out at mid-morning, 10 o'clock or something. And one of the blokes I was with said, that's it, he said, I'm going home. I'm going to go to my room. I'm going to close all the windows and the curtains and the blinds and turn all the lights off and just make it pitch black. I said, I said why on earth for? And he said, because I don't want anything to sully the experience of this morning. I, I don't want any other experience or sensory input to come to actually crowd out what I've just had and how good it was. Now, he's a bit an unusual man, let me just say straight up, right? But, but you get what he's saying. It's kind of, there's a moment sometimes where being in the dark, you, there's something about, some of you might like this, I just, I just sometimes like sitting in the dark where there's no, lots of stimulus happening, I can, just, I can just relax and calm down. Is that right, some of you like that? Yeah. But who wants to live all their life in the dark? It'd be like living in England. Man, that place is depressing. It's, um, do, do you know, one of the reasons Neighbours is so, the TV show Neighbours, one of the reasons Neighbours is so popular in, in Britain is because it's the only chance they get to look at a place with sunshine in it. <laughs> um, I have a friend who came from Seattle. Seattle is a bit the same. Seattle is, uh, is just constant rain, constant dull, no sunshine. He said he landed here and he realised why God gave us eyelids first time he had to use them with the sun and the glare you know he said but uh, it is okay for a moment to be in the dark but the idea of light is the idea of life and insight and understanding and goodness and beauty and health to be in the light is to be a wonderful place that's the idea of light now 
consider what John says about the light. Have a look there at verse 9. And it's, you've got to look carefully. Uh, and one of the things I want to do with you tonight, just slow down and look at what the text is saying. Notice this verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. Though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognise him. You see, the light was coming into the world, the light was in the world. Now, which is it? Coming or in? Well, verse 4 tells you something similar, that the light was already in the world. Before Jesus became man, verse 4, in the divine Logos was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. Now, I think that's a reference to the work of the divine Logos prior to the coming of Jesus. This is big to pick up. But I think that's a reference to the divine work of God, the divine Logos, at work in human life in the world prior to Him becoming man on that first Christmas day. The light was in the world already, at work, gifting the world with good things. The divine Logos has been active. Now, in him was life. Now, there's two ways in which he's life. He's life in that he creates life and he sustains life. Um, The divine Logos is the one through whom God made everything and gave everything life. But he's the one through whom God sustains all life by his powerful word. Hebrews chapter 1, Acts chapter 17, you get it in various places where God upholds the universe. Colossians chapter 1 with his divine word, the Logos. And in that act of giving life and sustaining light, he brings light to the world. Let me explain what I mean. When I uh, drove to church this morning, I, um, I was driving up Terrywood Drive here and uh, I, I had these things in my mind, I was mulling over them uh, as I was coming to church and, and I just looked up, oh, and I didn't just look up, I was looking up as I was driving, right, but uh, <laughs> taking notes as I go along, texting while I was going along, but, uh, and looked up and I looked up and saw the trees, right, this is one of those beautiful moments, I looked up and saw the trees and all the gum trees just in the sunshine. There was uh, just sparkling light and the wind, ris- you know, it was this kind of beautiful poetic experience, right? And, um, but here's what, I, here's what happened for me. I went, um, that's beautiful. That didn't just happen. There's a design that actually is beautiful. There's light and life. A- and what it drew home for me again was this fact that the God who brings life to the world, in that act, reveals himself to us, sheds light about himself to us, because he leaves his fingerprints in the very creation that he's made. The heavens, Psalm 19, declare the glory of God. You lock up into the stars at night time and, and, and you look at the vastness of it, the, the, the beauty, and, and you go, there's got to be more. This didn't just happen. You know, I think it takes a very clever person 
to see the incredible intricate design of the universe, how it looks so designed and purposeful and meaningful and work out that it isn't. That takes a really clever person to see design and show a way that it could have happened without design, accidentally. Sir Isaac Newton, who was a great scientist many uh, centuries ago, uh, an extraordinary scientist, he said, in the absence of any other evidence, the thumb alone would convince me there's a God. And, and what he's saying is that the, 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 very, the, the complexity, the nature of it, the way it works, the opposable bit, the meaning and sense to it, the, it, all of that just speaks of this not being an accident. You see, God's bringing of life leaves his fingerprints in it and sheds light so that Romans chapter 1 um, humanity is without excuse because we, we can see in the very things of creation that there is a God who is glorious and divine in nature. Light is revealed in the creative life that God has established. But it's more than this. God in His upholding through the divine logos of life also actively brings light to humanity. He brings the light of insight, understanding, rational thought, beauty, goodness, love, justice. God has been at work from the creation of humanity to bring into our world by the divine logos light so that we might understand and have insight and see Whatever insights humanity have ever gained throughout history have been gifted to us by the divine logos. Whatever goodness we enjoy as a humanity, God has gifted it to us through the divine logos, who is light, who is that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. He was in verse 10, he was in the world, the, this light at work. Whatever spark of truth, found in whatever corner of the world has been gifted to us by the divine Logos, giving life to His creatures. Whatever longing for beauty that you have ever had, whatever longing for justice and equality, is a gift of the divine Logos, enlightening you to have those desires. If you love sport and health and vigour, it's gifted to you by the divine Logos, who is in the world bringing light and life. If you love art and you're gifted in it, it's a, it's a spark of the divine Logos at work in you. If you love learning and, and insight, it's a spark from God, the divine Logos. So verse 9, the true light that gives light to everybody, was coming into the world in a special way, but he was in the world. Verse 4 and 5, shining in the darkness and bringing light to humanity. The authentic, genuine light, a gift. He has been gifting humanity from all of our human existence. So James chapter 1, verse 17, all good gifts come to us from above, from the Lord of light. He was, though, coming into the world in a new way. He was in the world previously, the light of the divine Logos. But he was coming in a very special way. 
coming into it in a new experience. Verse 14, in becoming flesh and dwelling amongst us. And so, we come to the tragedy. The tragedy there is verse 10. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. The tragedy was and is that God was near. He has always been near. He's been near to us, sustaining us, giving us life, giving us light, giving us beauty and goodness and love, giving us truth and insight. But the world didn't know him. It didn't give credit to him. We saw every instance of our insight and growth in enlightenment as an activity of our own independent will. We saw enlightenment as us discovering, or we attributed it to other gods. And that has been a huge tragedy. It's what the Bible, of course, calls sin. Now, it's not a very attractive image, the idea of sin. It's a massive theme throughout the Bible from the very beginning, where Adam and Eve rejected God's sin, all the way through to the need for a saviour, all the way through to salvation coming, all the way through to it actually being eradicated in the new creation. Sin is a theme that runs all the way through the Bible. Um, God has been shining light in our world and we have not been paying attention. Tragedy, sin. The Bible talks of sin a lot. But here the, here's the thing, the true nature of sin isn't what we do to each other. Just to recalibrate. The true nature of sin isn't horizontal. The true nature of sin isn't that we're selfish with each other, greedy, oppressive, abusive. That's not the true nature of sin. It's a horrible thing. But the true nature of sin is vertical. It's humanity's failure to honour the gifting of the giver and honour the one who has given it to us. It's the failing to give thanks to him and recognise him as the one who has gifted us with every good gift. It's vertical. So even if you're a good moral person and yet refuse to acknowledge and honour the giver, sin is deeply embedded in your heart tragedy and this tragedy unfolds in a more intense form at one particular time and place you'll see it there in verse 11 he the divine logos the light the true light came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him now who's he talking about who is the own that he's talking about? his own um, he's been talking about the whole world failing to receive, recognise, know the true light. And now he's talking about a particular group within the whole world. And it's undoubtedly the case that John is referring here to the fact that the true light comes to Israel, to the Jewish people, to the people that belong to God. And that's capturing up a massive Old Testament set of themes where God actually chose Israel out of all the nations to be his special nation where he gave them the Ten Commandments, where he came close to them, built a temple for them, him to dwell amongst them, to gave them, gave them prophets to speak his word to them, um, uh, rescued them and disciplined them and carried them like, uh, uh, like uh, on the wings of eagles and so on. Uh, God had been close to this people 
and he comes to that which is own. He comes home to his own people. The divine Logos comes home. Surely, of all people, they would receive him. Surely there's one nation that would welcome him. Surely they would accept the God that they'd claim to worship. But not only didn't they know him, John says they didn't receive him. The tragedy. And John is talking about the gifting of God, the gifting of God, the tragedy and the sense of shock that the world that was made through the divine Logos didn't know the one who made them. That the very people that were his own people didn't receive him. And in all of this, again, he's giving us how to make sense of all the events that you'll read through the rest of the gospel. How to make sense of what happens with the Jewish people, with Jesus and all that goes on. But in the face of all of that, the glory of God shines all the more brightly. Because he gifted, there was tragedy, but he continues to give. And it's there in verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's an astonishing verse. Yet, despite the fact that the world has not recognised him, known him, despite the fact that his own people have not received him, John goes on to say, yet to all who did receive him, he gives the right to become children of God, to become children of God. And it's quite clear that what's being talked about here is um, a group of people without reference to ethnicity. You see, he's been talking about the Jews who reject him, but then he goes on to say, yet to all. And the clear point John is making is to Jew or Gentile, whatever your ethnicity, it doesn't matter to anybody now who receives him, whether Jew or Gentile. One of the most important verses in John's Gospel is John 3, verse 16. Um, and, and I hope you've memorized it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that, listen to this, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever, says Jesus, to all without exception, without distinction, whether Jew, whatever your nation, whatever your background, whether male or female, whatever your gender, whatever your status, rich or poor, to all, you are given the privilege, given a privilege. Notice this, it's God who gives us the right to become children of God because we don't have the right by nature. It has to be gifted to us. We don't have it by nature because we're sinners, mere fallen creatures. But there is a place where you can be given, gifted the right, the privilege to become children of God. And I think I've got the illustration for this. I was uh, at home yesterday and my, one of my son-in-laws came home from hospital. He'd had an operation on his knee. And, um, and so it's got one of those massive braces on. He's had an ACL done and so on. And, and he was lying around moaning and asking for drinks and stuff like this. No, 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 he's actually very good. He was very stoic. Um, but he, 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 he needed to go to the toilet. And I said, well, you're not going to our toilet. Go downstairs. And, um, and so he had to climb his way down the stairs. 
with this kind of clamp on, which I did feel a little guilty about, but he, he said, he said, it's okay because the nurse told me how to do it. She said, um, uh, when you go downstairs, bad leg first, down the stair, and follow it with a good one. Yeah. He said, and she said, when you go upstairs, good leg first, and then follow it with a bad one. That was very clever, right? And, um, but he said, she then added this little thing to help you remember it. She said, um, bad leg down first when you go down, good leg go first when you go up, good up to heaven, bad down to hell. <laughs> I went, what? <laughs> she said that? And he said, yeah. And I said, that's a sermon illustration waiting to be preached. Because right there is a complete, complete misunderstanding of Christianity. It is the utter opposite of what Christianity is about. Isn't that fantastic? And so <laughs> I said, Jasper, what did you do? Did you preach to her? And she said, oh, I was undrugged. I couldn't do anything. But, <laughs> but um, good up to heaven, bad down to hell is the complete opposite. We don't have the right to go to heaven. We're not good enough to earn our way to heaven. The only people who go to heaven are bad people. Bad up heaven, good down hell is the Bible's picture. Now that ruins your ability to work out what to do with your leg going up and down stairs. But I'm concerned about bigger things. You see, it's bad people who go to heaven because the right and privilege of being accepted as a child of God is based entirely on God gifting us that. You, you see, it, it's, not the, it's not the good who go to heaven because there are no good. It's the, bad, it's the good who go to hell because they're the ones who think they're good and they're not. And so they're never in a place to look for a saviour. But if you come to the saviour, bad though you are, like we all are, you are the one who goes up. The Christian message is about God who gives us a gift that's not our own, that we don't deserve, the right and privilege to become a child of God. And what a privilege to become a child of God. And notice this, he says there in verse 12, the right to become children of God, not the right to be called a child of God, but the right to become. You become a child of God. You are changed and transformed. It's an extraordinary privilege. Do you know, through this book, uh, through John's account, as Jesus, uh, where rep he reports all that Jesus said and did, one of the things you see emerge is the profound intimacy of the relationship the Son, Jesus, has with his Father, the Heavenly Father. It's an extraordinary picture of deep relationship and deep love for one another from all eternity. Whatever I see the Father do, that's what I do. My Father's been working, I've been working. This beautiful intimacy of them together forever, wonderfully supporting one another. But here's the thing, as you go through John's Gospel, Jesus begins to say, I'm here to bring you into this intimacy that I've enjoyed. I'm here to make you one with me, to join with me as my brother, my sister that you might enter into the same intimacy with, intimacy with God the Father that I've had as a child of God. What a privilege that you can call God your Father, that you can have the Creator of the universe look to you with love, to be for you, to promise to guard you and carry you and uphold you, to be for you 
now and into eternity, to not let anything break you and him and his relationship with you. Not angels, not demons, not death, not anything. To bring you into fullness of life with him forever. To be, become a child of God. To share in that is an extraordinary privilege. Now, how does it happen? Well, you see it there in verse 12 and 13. Two things. How do you get this privilege, this right? Well, it's to all those who do receive him and to those who believe in his name. First one, with two things. It's you who receive him and believe in his name. What does all of that mean? To believe in his name is to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. It's to believe that Jesus is the divine Logos, the true life, the true life, come amongst us as Lord God of the universe. It's to believe the truth of that and to receive him as Lord. It's not just to believe it's true, but to believe it's true and receive him as your Lord. Take him on as your ruler, as the one who now governs your life. There's the first thing. It requires you to receive him, to believe in his name. Second thing, Verse 13, you become a child by the word, by the born of God, not born of natural descent, human decision or husband's will. He outlines, he outlaws any other human way of this happening. You don't become a child of God because you were born to a certain family. You don't become a child of God because you've got the right ethnicity. You don't become a child of God by mere human decision. You become a child of God by His miraculous new birth in your life. By Him, by His Spirit, bringing an extraordinary thing where you're reborn, where you're made entirely new. And this is for all those who receive Jesus as Lord. Now, those two things are necessary. How they relate together is complex. How is it related together that it's a miraculous work of God and necessary for me to believe and receive, we'll see that unfold over the next weeks. But there is the great gift again of God. Let me now finish up with a couple of applications. Let me give you, I think, five applications to finish. These go very quickly. First one. Can I encourage you with all of this to appreciate again the scale of the thing we're involved in? The person of Jesus didn't just start to exist with his birth. He is the divine Logos, crowded into flesh, shoehorned into a body, who walked around Palestine bursting out with light and life, contained. We are not just talking about another religious leader. We are talking about none other than God himself amongst us. Capture the scale of what we're doing together. Second, appreciate the grace and gift of God. God is the God who gifts and gives and has been gracious from all human history. He is the one who gave us life, sustains life, who has given us light, enlightened us in every way us in the light when the darkness threatened to overcome it. Continue to give us the light of enlightenment, insight, understanding, 
beauty, goodness, love. These things are all the wonderful gift of God. Appreciate the grace of God, who then, despite the tragedy of sin, still comes to rescue us. Appreciate the grace of God. Third, grieve the tragedy. Grieve the tragedy of humanity that will not recognise the one who has given us and given us and gifted us all the way through our history, who keeps thinking it's us who's done this, who keeps thinking it's other gods who have done this. Grieve the tragedy of sin. Fourth, beware the danger of religion. Don't assume that just because you come to church or watch online, don't assume that because you're a religious person that you truly are in touch with the true God. Israel is a great warning to us. Israel had a history of dealings with the true God. And of all people, they expressed a worship of the true God. They longed for the true God. But when the true God came, they didn't recognise him. They killed him because he didn't fit with how they wanted God to be. Beware religiosity. The very great danger is that we can sit here together, we can talk about God, and in the midst of that conversation, really be thinking about a God of our own imaginations, not the God who is truly there. And let me tell you how this can play out. You and I live amongst a world that has all its values and priorities and concerns, and we can start absorbing these things. And it can come to a place where my understanding of gender, my understanding of sexuality, my understanding of the way men and women ought to relate, my understanding about race and so on, my understanding about all these things can be formed in a way that slowly steps me away actually from the way God would have us think about these things. Now, please let me hasten to say I'm not telling you how to think about those things yet. But I'm just saying, unless you're prepared to come to God and say, whatever you say about how I ought to think about gender, that's what I'll hold. I give you a blank check. However you tell me to think about men and women, however you tell me to think about sexuality, however you tell me to think about what's right and wrong sexually, I'm going to bow the knee to you. Unless you come to Him like that, you'll find yourself gradually forming opinions about what is good and bad, such that when God does come, you'll be shocked. Keep soft towards God's Word. Have soft hearts towards Him. Humble yourself before Him. Otherwise, the turning at the arrival of God will be a great shock. Let me say fifthly, give thanks to the God who continues to give and make sure you've responded rightly to Him. Have you? Have you received Him? Have you believed in His name? Have you had the new birth where you are a child, you become a child of God? How would you know? These are profoundly important questions. That's why this book is written. Because everything hangs on that. If you haven't received Him, believed on His name, can I encourage you to realise how much you owe God? Your whole life, every moment of life that you enjoy, 
is a gift from God. You might be someone who's into causes and protests and, and great concerns about equality and, and um, uh, ridding the world of oppression. Friends, if this is a passion that you have, let me assure you they only exist because God gave them to you. Give thanks to the one who's given you that heart and receive him as your Lord. Come and believe in his name. Come and receive him and find the, mir mir the miracle of new birth that God works in your life. How about I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have gifted us and gifted us. We are so sorry for the tragedy of sin. 